you dare me to do anything, I will do anything. And consistently, I kind of attribute my success to just always saying yes. I, I'm always afraid to say no. I'm afraid I'll miss out on something. You know, it's easy to say no. But if you look at no, N-O are the first two letters in nothing. So nothing starts with a no. I'm Dan Shulman, the president and CEO of PayPal, and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and changemakers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. In today's episode, we're going to explore the art of the pivot. When you're in a fight, whether it's a physical fight or a life struggle, one of the things you have to battle against is thinking too much because you don't always have time to analyze what's happening. My Krav Maga instructor once said to me, we are all born with black belt bodies. And then we start thinking, and that gets in the way of our bodies knowing how to react. I found the best way to pivot in real time is to trust my instincts and my training that I've been doing for years upon years and repetition upon repetition. Here's Kelly Campbell to explain how keeping yourself flexible can help you come out on top. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga Worldwide System for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the United States. Real life fights are rarely planned. There's no way to know exactly what's coming at you, but you don't need a hundred page analysis to make the right moves. A big part of Krav Maga is staying in the moment so that you're able to make smart, offensive strikes and be able to defend yourself against whatever moves are thrown your way. Regular life is no less unpredictable, but trusting yourself during the chaos can lead to unexpected wins. We've all heard about how tough it is to break into the entertainment industry, but that hasn't stopped Howie Mandel from sampling every job in showbiz. He's a comedian, game show host, actor, screenwriter, producer, director, voiceover artist, author, host, America's Got Talent judge, and I'm just getting started. The man is a pivot machine. So let's start by rewinding back to Howie's pre-Hollywood days in Toronto. Public speaking is consistently rated as one of people's biggest fears. Yet one of the legends of Howie Mandel is that he started stand-up comedy on a dare. Was that terrifying yeah. to go do that? Yeah, absolutely, and yeah. uh, but that's the terror that I, I love in life. You know, I like that awkward discomfort, and I also have a, you know, I've, I've been very open about my mental health issues and anxiety and depression and OCD, and one of the effects of the things I suffer from is I don't think of ramifications. You know, I just, jump and do stupid things all the time and and don't really think. And to that end, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends in the 70s. 
disco was all the rage, but I was not a dancer <laughs> or a drinker, so I didn't go to discos. I'm not a gambler, so I didn't have a card game to get together. And I don't play sports, so I didn't have like a one-on-one -on -one basketball game to go to. So they opened a Yuck Yucks in Canada, in Toronto. And it was like just at the cusp of the starting of the uh, the comedy boom. Yeah. You know, Catch a Rising Star and the improv and, and the comedy store had just started in, in L.A. and New York. So I went because uh, a friend said, let's go. I had never been to a comedy club. And I watched all these stand-up comics. And then the host got up and said, hey, if you if you aspire to do anything like this, amateurs can come up from midnight on Monday. till." And somebody at the table went, you should go. And I went, okay. And that was the last thought I had of it. And, yeah. and really, if I break down the thought, I just said, somebody said I should go up. And I go, okay, I'll go up. And you dare me to do anything, I will do anything. And consistently, I kind of attribute my success to just always saying yes. I, I'm always afraid to say no. I'm afraid I'll miss out on something. Mm. So the thought process was somebody was going to go, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And really, who the hell is Howie? Like, what? It, I'm not a comedian. So if there is a joke, that's the joke. That yeah. just this goof, this goof signed up to do an amateur night. Of course, today, Howie Mandel is a famous comedian. But his whole career was built on the power of going for it. He's like a human Nike swoosh symbol with a just do it motto. Unsurprisingly, this philosophy set Howie on a very interesting life path. And I'll never forget that moment. It was April 19th, 1977. I, went, I took my wife out for um, food and we got a fortune cookie at the end and it said tonight the path of your life will change. I kept that. It was in my pocket. That's crazy. Yeah. And he went, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I jumped up on stage thinking, boom, that's the joke. You know, there, he just introduced somebody who- You had nothing prepared? No, no. Just a, a, about as much as I've had, I prepared for you today. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Preparation is not my <laughs> strong suit. So he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, I've never been on a stage and I'm standing there on the stage in front of this mic. I could smell the mic. I could smell the beer from the breath from the other comics. And uh, I'm blinded by the light of the uh, spotlight. I've never had that before. And I look down and the, the, the applause after the uh, introduction had died down. And I look down and there's people just looking up at me like, okay, okay, funny boy. Yeah. What you got? And the terror, the terror just bubbled up inside of me. And I realized I had absolutely nothing. And if you go into YouTube and you look at all my first appearances and things like that, you will see what is authentically terror. And I started going and my, my persona was very different. I started going, okay, okay, all right, okay, okay. And, and as I was going, okay, out of my nervousness, they started giggling at me and I didn't even know what was out. Okay, what, what, what? Okay, don't laugh. And they were laughing more. And I've also had OCD all my life. I put my hands in my pocket and I had a rubber glove, which I always carried with me out in case I needed to use a public restroom. I didn't want to touch anything. That's why I had the rubber glove. And they're laughing at my terror and I'm just sweating. And I just took the glove without any thought and I pull it over my head and I pull it over my nose and I start breathing and the fingers are going up and down and the audience is roaring. So I inflate it and I blew it up and it popped off and they, they applauded. And I went, good night. At least I knew when to leave. And I <laughs> exactly. ran off the stage. And Mark Breslin, who is the host and the owner of Yuck Yucks in Toronto, said, hey, can you come back tomorrow? And I said, why? 
He said, you do it again. And I go, do what? He goes, do what you did. But I said, what the, <laughs> what the fuck did I do? I don't know what I did. I was just terrified. But it was fun. And my analogy for comedy and live performing was like, I still, to this day, love thrill rides. If I can get on a, the higher the roller coaster, the faster the roller coaster, the more, the, the closer to death, I believe that I'm coming, the more alive I feel. You know, I love that adrenaline and I need that. And because of all the shit that I think about in life, you know, that's the thing that keeps me in the now, you know, that in, in the moment without worrying about what happened yesterday, without yeah. worrying, thinking about what will happen tomorrow. And I found a place where I could go three, four times a week and just be in the moment. And I just started doing it and, and didn't pursue. Mm -hmm. I just started doing it. And I promise you today, if I was a, you know, a janitor somewhere, but two times a week, I could go drop in a club. I'd be just, I wasn't going after the notoriety. I wasn't going after the money. It's just, this was my respite. And I was really lucky in the sense that I've always said yes. A huge part of the art of the pivot is the willingness to take that step. That one little step towards trying something new. And yes, stand-up comedy might seem like a scary thing to try. But Howie's risk had a handsome reward. He found something that he loves to do regardless of money. And that open mic was just the beginning. So I was in California doing a business trip, having nothing to do with it was retail I was in. And uh, I went to the comedy store. I had met some of the people that from Yuck Yucks. Mike Binder got me on at the comedy store. And I thought, well, it's a nice little story to tell about my vacation. Yeah. You know, and I, he, he got me on and a, a producer was in the audience in Hollywood. Who would think? And he had a comedy game show called Make Me Laugh. He hired me on the spot. I went and taped it here. I'd never been on a stage before. And I mean, in a, in a studio, in a TV studio. And then I went home. It didn't air in Canada. I'm from Canada, yeah. Toronto. And uh, as it started airing, I started getting calls from people like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. Merv Griffin, what? And then my career, I just, I, I just follow, you know, I don't set a trail or blaze a trail for myself. I just follow this weird path. Even what I'm doing right now, being on your show. If somebody calls and says, do you want to be on? I, I really, now I've just opened up a can of worms for everybody. Yeah. But, but I do. I go, okay. I mean, the only reason I'm not on everything is because I don't have time for everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't believe the rubber glove thing just came like out of nowhere. You just pulled it out of your pocket. My whole career came out of nowhere. Pulled it over your head. I didn't know what to do. I just said <laughs> I was panicking. You know, and that fear. I like challenges. Howie is in the right business because the entertainment industry is rife with unique challenges. And Howie didn't stop with stand-up. Stand-up became a bridge to other opportunities, which Howie often met with a yes. Soon, he started auditioning for acting roles on TV shows. I think your first serious one was St. Elsewhere, which was way more a drama than it was, you know, a sitcom. Well, again, another accident. So I had done a young comedian special and I'd blown up from that. The young comedian special that I did was on HBO and the other young comedians that were comedians to watch on my special were, it was me, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. He went on to do something. Um, <laughs> Richard Lewis. Harry Anderson, who was Night Court, 
And it was hosted by the Smothers Brothers at the Roxy here in, in Los Angeles. That blew me up. I started playing venues that were 10,000 seats and, you know, 15,000 seats. And the next natural progression for anybody that had gotten into comedy was to get a sitcom. Right. So I went and had a general meeting. My agent set up a general meeting at MTM, Mary Tyler Moore's company, which was probably the gold star of production companies as far as sitcoms. At the time that they were doing New Heart, Mm -hmm. they had done obviously the Mary Tyler Moore show, all those other shows that came, you know, Rhoda and everything. Howie, you and I were born at exactly the same age. I recognize everything you're saying. Really? I think you're a lot younger than me though, right? Like maybe two or three years. I'd born in 55. 58. So anyway, so I'm, I sat down with this casting person, Molly Lapata, and she goes, can you act? And I go, well, I don't know. I can act like myself. You know, I've never been to acting school. I've never been really in a school play. I don't know. She goes, do you mind reading something for me? I go, okay. So she hands me a little piece of a script, some sides, and I read these lines and it's like, I don't even understand what I'm saying. A lot of scientific stuff. And she goes, that's very good. Come down the hall. So I go down the hall. Now I know who they are, but I didn't know there was like five men in a room and I read again and they stopped me halfway through and went, thank you. And I went home and my wife asked me how it was. And I said, I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't think they liked me. I don't think I did well. They stopped me the second time halfway through, but I don't feel bad because it's not funny. It's just not funny. I had no idea what I was reading. I get a call. I've been home for five minutes. Could you come back to NBC and meet with Brandon Tartikoff? If anybody knows who Brandon Tartikoff course, was the course. king yeah. of television. He revived NBC. He is the reason that Seinfeld exists. Cheers. And he wanted to see me read that again. So I go down to, there's a Friday and I go down to NBC. I go to Brandon Tartikoff's office. Brandon's sitting there with all the same guys. And I read it again, the same thing, same shitty comedy. And uh, I, he goes, wait outside. And I went outside and then they walk out and one of the guys says, we'll see you Monday. And I figure, okay, so I'm coming back for a read Monday. And then on the way home, the agent calls and said, you got it. And I said, what what did I get? And they go, well, they had been shooting this drama for seven days. They were looking at the dailies. They were looking every day. They were looking and they didn't like the direction it was going. So they wanted to recast some of the parts and start again because NBC had given an order for 13 episodes. So I took the place of Fiscus. This was a show for anybody that remembers, you know, this started Denzel Washington, um, Norman Lloyd, who just passed away at 106. He was the bad guy in Spellbound. It had Billy Daniels, who was from The Graduate. It had all these great actors in it. And I took the place. The original uh, Fiscus was David Pamer, who went on to get nominated and I think won an Academy Award for Mr. Saturday Night. He played Billy Crystal's brother. Mm -hmm. But I spent six years on that show when they hired those guys that were in the room were Bruce Paltrow, Gwyneth's dad. He was the executive producer. Mm-hmm. Mark Tinker, Grant Tinker's son, who was the director and producer of that. John Macius and Tom Fontana, who went on to do, you know, uh, Oz. And uh, he works with Barry Levinson and uh, so many great shows. They went on to uh, write and direct. I had no idea that I was part of something that good, but I did it for six years. By this time, Howie's kind of a known entity. His stand-up shows sell out big theaters. He's been on a long-running, critically acclaimed TV show. He's kind of a big deal, but he wasn't deal or no deal Howie yet. Did you go from that, or there's probably some time, but in 2005, 
I re remember reading you were hesitant to take on this like game show host. No, not only hesitant. More hesitant is a is a very fluffy, soft word. So <laughs> by two thousand and four, you know, I had this great early success and I left yeah. my uh, business. I was engaged to be married to the girl I'm married to now. But I mean, we flew out of here like two kids. I said, listen, if this doesn't work, I can always sell. I have as much of an entrepreneurial spirit as I do a creative spirit. Mm -hmm. So, but let's just try. Let's just see. Cause everybody's calling every day. I, I'm, it's just too hectic to keep flying back to Canada, back and forth. So let's move out here. So what happened was when I blew up, I blew up and I was playing these 10,000 seat theaters by 2004, my career had waned, you yeah. know? So now I was in comedy clubs, back to clubs that were half full. I was sitting on folding chairs outside of casting offices, reading for five lines and under. And it was a little, you know, after being on a series and yeah. having sold out shows and big venues and all that, it was a little debilitating. And I had done okay financially and yeah. made some investments and did things. And I'm very involved. I like real estate. So I said, I'm just going to do that. And as I told you at the beginning of this conversation, if I drop in an, at the comedy store a couple times a week, I'm going to get my rocks off. I don't yeah. need to be, you know, creatively kicked in the nuts every day. And, and just, <laughs> and that's how I felt. And then I get a call from my manager who says, I got an offer from NBC for you to do a game show. And I, I went no fucking way and hung up the phone. And you have to remember that, the you know, in 2004, no comedian had ever done a game show. And when your currency is irony, the game show host was the, the punchline. Just like, right. you know, in those <laughs> days, if you were a movie star, you didn't do TV. If you were on TV on a show, you didn't do commercials. And if you were a comedian, you weren't a game show host. This would have been the point when a lot of Howie's comedian peers would have said no. It's not in vogue, it's not considered cool, no thank you. But Howie left the conversation open just enough to pivot into perhaps the biggest opportunity of his career. He calls me back and he goes, Howie, you're not gonna believe this. They called back again, they said they can't do it without you. NBC is devoting five hours of prime time to the game shows in a row, which has never been done. There hasn't been the same show on every night mm. for an hour and broadcast TV. And I said, fuck no, that's even more of a reason. This is going to be that if I do this, <laughs> this is humiliating. This is the nail in the coffin of my career. And now you're telling me that if somebody misses the nail in the coffin of my career, they got yeah, five. They're going to see it. Catch. They're going <laughs> to see it. He called me one more time. He goes, they say they can't do it without you. Can you just take a meeting? I go, I'll tell you what, I'm at a deli in the Valley here in LA. If the guy wants to show up, you know, he can, but I don't want to go to an, this is not anything I want to do. Rob Smith from Endemol then shows up at this deli. He pushes oh, my yeah. soup away and he puts down this card. I have it here. He puts down this card that looks like, uh, you know, a, a seven-year-old child was doing a project. It was a, like, he didn't go to Kinko's. There was no, I thought it was, I was being punked. I thought it was a joke. Then he's got like a stack of like 26 little pieces of paper upside down. Pick one. You're trying to pick the one with a million, but don't look at it. I picked that. And then he's telling me to, there's no cases at this point. It's paper. Yeah. Open five of these, open five. And you're trying to, you know, the game, just open it. But there's no game. I'm thinking there's no, there's no skill. There's no trivia. There's no nothing. So, and he's, and I'm listening to him. He's going, okay, pick one of those. Okay. Pick three more. All right. Pick two more. 
All right, pick one more. Okay, and, it, and that's what he's asking me to, you know. So I go, I went home, and uh, my wife just said, "Listen," because I was really depressed and really having a hard time. She said, "You better take this job." I said, "Really?" So I called them on the Friday, and I said, "All right, I'll do it." And they were so ecstatic. They said, "We couldn't have done it without you." I said, "When do you shoot?" They said, "Monday." I said, "Well, don't you have to build a set?" They said, "We we have a set." I go, "Well, don't you need twenty six models?" They said, "We have them." So I'm thinking, how far down the list was I? Yeah. How many people had said, no, you couldn't do it without me? You know why you can't do it without me? Because there's nobody left. That's why you can't do it without me. So I said, can you do me one favor? Can I call a couple of my friends, a couple of writers, just to get some material? I, got, I don't have any ideas. And that's not a game. It's just going to be me saying, open the case incessantly, you know, or deal or no deal. There's no game. There's nothing here. So they said, yeah. So I hired a couple of rides. We sat all weekend. I came up with some funny, pretty funny stuff. Okay, so Howie took the leap, but he didn't do it blindly. He prepared for what he sees as a potentially risky, embarrassing opportunity by leaning into his strength. The skill that got him this far in the first place is comedy. And Monday morning comes around and I'll never forget this. You know, I did 500 episodes and it's as clear as yesterday. Yeah. I walk out and the crowd is roaring and I meet the first contestant. Her name is Karen Van. I say, Karen, tell me about yourself. And I'm standing with her, I'm looking into her eyes. There's a glaze over her eyes because when you take somebody who hasn't been on television, they're surrounded by like 500 people, 20 cameras, all the lights. And the board is lit up with a million dollars. This woman tells me she's from someplace in the Midwest. She's never owned a home. She has three children that are sitting right there in the audience. She's a single mother. She's never had insurance. What an opportunity this is to change her life. So we start to play the game. I'm noticing that she's not really focused. You know, she's in this out-of-body experience. I guess yeah. for her, the first offer comes in, I think it's like $15,000. And I go, listen, the banker just called $15,000. And before I can say deal or no deal, she just goes, no deal. And I'm thinking, you know, I kind of <laughs> understand money. You know, and I'm going like, I get it. You want to play. There's still a chance at a million. But the the frivolity that you just threw away $10,000. I doubt she's ever seen $10,000. Mm -hmm. Never had that lump sum offer to her once. She's had to do nothing for it. Like you just threw it away like it was nothing and you're not focusing. And then I did a joke and she was giggling and, and saying no deal. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't want to be responsible for her not focusing and making a good decision. So that in that moment, I threw away all the comedy. You know, first and foremost, I'm a human being. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And I said, I cannot be responsible for her not leaving here in a better place than she came in. So that changed my cadence. And I started talking to her like I talked to my kids when they were five. Mm -hmm. And I would go, Karen, the offer is... $60,000. Now listen to me, Karen. $60,000 is real. Do you want the $60,000 or do you want a chance? This is real. Or do you mm -hmm. want to go for a chance at a million? Think about this. Deal or no deal. You know, and it was more about not me trying to be dramatic. I'm trying to, I have a, a fucking message. Yeah, trying to yeah, help and, her. Yeah, and they, would, they <laughs> yeah. would flash on the screen, stop how he's, because standards and practices, you can't force somebody to take a bunch. It was all about her making good decisions and me not being in the way of her making a good decision. Anyway, I went through the whole week and did the whole 
show like that. Didn't do any comedy. I was beside myself as far as I was so scared of whatever the backlash was going to be because it was yeah. the first time I was on television, not only not doing comedy but, and not doing lines like I was doing in St. Elsewhere, not doing anything. I was just being Howie. I was embarrassed. There was going to be five primetime nights. So I, I told my wife, we got to get out of here. It was going to air the next week. And I got on a plane and we flew to Tortola in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Where, and we were stay, where I was at a place where there was no TV, no phone, no nothing. I just wanted to escape. I didn't know how I was ever going to come back into this country. Howie went from, hell no, I'm not interested, to fully committing to hosting the game show, jokes aside. He stayed present and he stayed true to his humanity. And guess what? It paid off big time. And on Monday, Rob Smith, who's the guy who came to have soup with me and sold me the show, phones me and says, you're not going to believe this on, on Tuesday morning. He goes, it went through the roof. I go, what went through the roof? He goes, the show. People really liked it. And then he calls me again on Wednesday after the Tuesday air. He goes, even bigger. Wednesday, bigger. Thursday, bigger. At the end of the week, it set a record. It was like over 100 million viewers in that first week. It became the biggest show. But not only did it become a great show for people to watch and with the entire family and scream at the TV, it became studies in economics and yeah. Wall Street Journal was writing about it, you know, greed versus risk, you know, and psychology books on humanity and and how how the mind works. It became so much bigger than I could ever dream. And this was and it was so big, it went through the roof that within three weeks of that, it was the first time ever Fox called Jeff Foxworthy to do Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And then they called comedians to do everything. You know, Bob Saget did one versus a hundred. Now there isn't a game show. Steve Harvey owes me a big thank you, Howie. You know, now they go after every game show is led by a comedian. What an incredible story. Despite his game show hesitations, Howie went for it and took the gig. He stayed open to the experience and deal or no deal became a smash hit. Howie's fears didn't come true. He wasn't laughed out of Hollywood. On the contrary, the game show took his career to new heights. In fact, other big comedians now wanted in. Now let's dig a little bit deeper into the psychology that got him there. So all these different, like, uh, I don't know, they almost seem haphazard in some way, you know, as you kind of went from one thing to another. But Were you consciously thinking ever like, okay, I'm making a pivot here and this is happening. I'm going to redefine myself or never. So I've never, you know, the worst thing for me, and this is just for me, is any thought process because I'll go down a a wormhole that nobody wants to be. (laughs) And, and, you know, I I believe in um, human instinct. I think there's something about us that is amazing in every human being. And based on instinct, that's why everybody, most people in life have coulda, shoulda, woulda. Yeah. And and that's because they had the opportunity. They wanted to do it. And if you stop for a second and you start to think about it, you know, there's always a million more reasons to not do something. It's mm-hmm. always seems safer. Seems safer. Yeah. Safer. But is it really safer to not live your life, you know, yeah. or not to not reach for your dreams? So it seems safer. And I always say, you know, it's easy to say no. But if you look at no, N-O are the first two letters in nothing. Mm. So nothing starts with a no. 
and I'll be honest with you, I've said yes to so many things that have been, you know, spectacularly embarrassing, spectacularly failures. And that continues to happen. But I'm actually okay with that. And I I learned from that. And, uh, you know, that's what I've taught my children who are now adults Mm -hmm. and have their own children. But that's what I've taught my children. Just go for it. You know, just go for it. We got this one life. And by the same token, people like yourself, people look at you and, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, and they go, wow, those are. I don't know that they're different than any of us. The only difference between what you guys did and anybody else is you did it and we didn't. Hmm. If if we were passionate about, you know, computers and wanted to just focus on that and walk away from college and work in your parents' garage and just with your best friends and just make that your focus, you're going to be the best entrepreneur, you know, the, the best tech person they'll be. If you want to lock yourself in your room from the time you're a baby and dance in front of a mirror, you're going to be Michael Jackson. You know, you're just whatever you want to do, you can do. I believe that we all have the power to achieve whatever we really need to achieve. And there's a difference between needing and wanting. And, you know, I needed my stage time. I I, And not because I needed to be famous and not because I needed to make money, but I need to do this. Howie's completely right. There's nothing safe about not following your dreams. Howie's dreams have led him to other dreams, and he continues to pivot and say yes to greater and greater possibilities in life. Of course, it's not a perfect journey, and there are always cringeworthy failures along the way. But as Howie said, if you say no, you're on your way to nothing. So can I change course for a, a second here? Just, you, you brought it up earlier, talking about some of the, you know, mental health issues that you've had to overcome. I don't overcome them, I cope with them. Yeah, it's just, I, I'm curious about that journey. Like, talking about that, like how, I know you kind of came into that slowly talking about it, and then I think on the Howard Stern show, you really kind of, opened up about it. Yeah, accidentally. Yeah, accidentally, I heard. How did that all happen? Well, you know, as a child of the 50s, uh, talking about it, and I believe that's the biggest issue we have right now today, is uh, the stigma that it goes along with any mental health issue. So I didn't talk about it. And I tried to, you know, do everything in my power to make the world around me comfortable at the expense of relationships and, you know, work and whatever. I would, I'd actually miss work just because I couldn't get over a a reoccurring thought. My wife finally gave me an ultimatum saying that, you know, either you go get help or I'm out, you know, with the kids. So I went and got help still wasn't willing to be open about it because of the generation that I come from and where I come from. And, but what happened was I I was on Howard Stern and, and, uh, anybody who knows Howard Stern, it's uh, kind of a wacky place to be. And there was, I was on the same time as somebody was, uh, pulling out his penis. They had puppetry of the penis people on. And, and and I was uh, so hyper-focused on this guy was touching his, his, uh, package but not washing his hands and then he left and i all i could you know it's like those charlie brown things where you just hear people talk wow 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 because wow, yeah, like yeah. i'm looking at the doorknob <laughs> thinking how am i going to get out how am i going to touch the doorknob so when he rapped with me i i said can somebody touch i don't want to touch the doorknob that guy touched the, 
himself and he didn't wash his hands. And I don't want to touch it. They go touch the doorknob. I go, no, I go to grab a tissue. They knock the tissue out of my hand. I said, no, no. Then I go to pull out my shirt and they yeah. wouldn't let me. They were having fun, you know? And then I started having a uh, panic attack, horrible. And um, I just blurted out. I said to him, Howard, this is serious. I go to a therapist. I'm medicated. And if you don't open the door for me right now, I'll end up in the hospital. And so they opened the door and they were laughing. And when I went out in the hall, I know I realized the speakers were still were broadcasting. I thought that we were in a break. I didn't know that oh. all this was being broadcast. And I just said, you know, I go to therapy. I'm medicated. I'm really sick. You really got to help me here. And I was so, uh, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book and I talked about it. With, uh, there's a documentary out now on Peacock. It's mm -hmm. called Enough About Me. But I talked about it. I was devastated. I thought I had humiliated my family, humiliated myself, put an end to my career to talk about that I had these mental health issues. And so much so that it was so dark, I, I contemplated running out into the traffic there in, in New York City. And wow. just as I was standing on the street, somebody came up in my periphery. I didn't look up. And he says, uh, you Howie Mandel? And I went, yeah. And I didn't make any eye contact. And he said, were you just on Howard Stern? And I said, yeah. And he leaned in close to me. I was just about, my, my heart dropped in my stomach. I said, maybe I should just take that leap right now. And he went, me too. And I went, you too, what? He goes, no, I have issues too. It's so cool to hear you talk about it. And that was the first time, you know, there wasn't the internet then. Yeah. Within weeks, I started getting mail, real mail, not email. I started yeah. getting mail saying, you know, oh my God, I can't believe. And I, I there, there was something so freeing about knowing for sure that you're not alone you know, and, and other people suffer. And, and I've made it my little soapbox now, but I, I believe that mental health is equivalent to, you know, our physical health. And I always say, I wish, you know, so we, I wish we took care of our mental health the way we take care of our dental health. I think it's the, the answer to everything. I really believe it's the answer to, you know, business productivity, good relationships, like getting married and having a kid. That's a, you need a coping skill. That's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Somebody can't come into the office in the middle of the day. Now there is still a stigma where you go, I just can't function today. I can't concentrate, but you could say to everybody, I think I got to go. I need a root canal. Or you could say to everybody, mm -hmm. my back is out. Do you have a chiropractor? You can't say I can't fucking function. Do you have a therapist I could talk to? And you should be able to, and your mental health, coincides with your physical health and coincides with your productivity. And even now, you know, in the news, when they talk about gun control and things like that, that's men those are mental health issues. Yeah, you know, I, I think at least I've seen this here at PayPal and talking to a bunch of other business leaders. You know, we used to always think about physical health. That was like the benefits package we gave employees, physical health. The pandemic though, like just opened the lid on mental health issues. Right, but I don't think we have a, I don't think we, we have an infrastructure to kind of carry that now. We need to build that. We do. We need to, you know, even if you're, for all your employees, you have an insurance package, you'll know that the, you know, I've, I've spoken on Capitol Hill that the funds for physical health do not parity the, the funds for mental health. Oh no, not at all, yeah. Because you can't yeah. give somebody an X-ray, you know? Like nobody tells you one out of four marriages don't work. How do people's whole families get torn apart and they're expected to show up to work the next day and, you know, do whatever it is that they have to do? You know, we don't it's not in place. It's not in place to ask for. It's not in place in our school system. And any GP regular doctor will tell you that if two people have the same ailment, but one person is in a bad 
mental state, they're healing and they're, it kind of affects everything physically, you know, mind over matter. And I believe that. Yeah, I do too, by the way, completely. I mean, I, I don't know how you separate the two out, actually. Most people do. You know, like even the word mental, I don't like using that, but that's what it is. It is your mental health. But the the connotation of mental has some sort of, you know, negative kind of, you know, I'm mental. I couldn't agree more with Howie's thoughts on mental versus physical health. I also grew up in an era where people didn't want to talk about mental health struggles. That sort of suppression makes the unavoidable struggles of our life, like grief, even more difficult to deal with. It seems like we've become more holistic in our understanding in recent years. Perhaps some of that is due to the collective trauma of the pandemic, but we still have a long way to go. But the positive takeaway for me is that we're actually talking about it. So hopefully, by having more of these types of conversations, we can destigmatize mental health together, which will lead to more parity in terms of treatment. Before we wrapped up our conversation, I wanted to ask Howie one last question about how he manages to get back up when life knocks him down. You can't go into fighting and life is a fight. You can't go into fighting without getting hit. And you're going to get hit. And some of the hits are going to hit a lot harder than others. And if you want to stay in the game, if you want to stay in the game, you're going to have to get up. I think people have a tendency to not want to stay in the game. And that's what Mm -hmm. that's what happens. I personally, I'm not good with any idle time. I have too many voices in my head that will make me I need to be busy. So even if it was giving up on this business or I was knocked down in this business, I would have been very busy in many other things. And even now I'm busy. I mean, people see me on AGT or they watch the documentary or the old reruns of Deal or No Deal. I'm so busy in so many other businesses. I love, you know, coming up with an idea, then recruiting people who are better than me to bring that idea to fruition like creating a team and then why, which is the opposite of what I do as stand-up comedy, which is uh, the dichotomy, which is just me alone with no rules, but it's a, you know, I just need to be busy and I need to be busy to be alive because, you know, people go, are you going to ever slow down? You're going to retire? Well, yes, but it's not going to be my choice. Right. You know, (laughs) I feel exactly the same way. How I really enjoyed our conversation. And I want to thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for being my PayPal. Yeah, (laughs) you're welcome. (laughs) Thanks again to Howie for a very fun and fascinating conversation. Everyone pivots in their journey and discussing Howie's career pivots made me reflective of my own. I started out at AT AT&T and spent 18 years climbing from an assistant account executive to the president of the consumer group. I had this huge corner office with its own bathroom and balcony. And I remember my dad came to visit and said, I can't believe this, son. This is so amazing. You're gonna be here the rest of your life. And then the next year, I told him I was leaving for this little internet startup called Priceline.com. 
and he thought that was the craziest idea ever. And at that point, I would never, ever have imagined getting a job on Wall Street. As I've said many times, I dress like Occupy Wall Street, not somebody who would actually work on Wall Street. But then I went to work for American Express. These looked like pivots when they were happening. And to my dad, it even looked like a mistake. But when you combine my experience in wireless and telecommunications with my experience at an e-commerce internet startup, with my experience in finance, it starts to look like the perfect background to become the CEO of PayPal. Sometimes serendipity happens, but it happens when you're willing to take a leap. So what can you take away from this episode to pivot into your next best self? Can you trust your instincts enough to go for it when your gut is telling you yes? And can you keep yourself open to unexpected possibilities that might just be the deal of a lifetime? I'm Dan Shulman. Thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still, Kida. All right, buddy. Keep up the good work. And tell people to listen to my podcast, Howie Mandel Does Stuff. <laughs>